I start this week, as I always do, with a thanks to Sora Shimazaki, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art of the podcast. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cobbride. We look this week at the corporate failure to prevent bribery offence and we look a little bit at deferred prosecution agreements simply because they're allied quite frequently. Now, the corporate failure to prevent bribery offence has been in the news a bit recently. There's the Coca-Cola bribery scandal a few weeks ago, of course, where Coca-Cola was the victim of fresh air contracts arranged on the basis of bribes. But uh, there was also, this week, the Glencore case, which was announced by the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, Glencore had been charged with the corporate offence as well as active bribery offences under the Bribery Act 2010. So I thought it would be useful to put together a few thoughts on it. So let's start, first of all, with that failure to prevent offence failure to prevent bribery offence. It'll be found under Section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010, which introduced that statute. Now, the Bribery Act 2010 was a comprehensive overhauling of the, I suppose it would be fair to describe it as a mishmash of bribery legislation, anti-corruption legislation, which existed in the United Kingdom at that time. It was all overhauled and replaced with this one-stop shop, if you like, for criminal bribery. The offence, the the statute, created four substantive offences of bribery. There was Section 1, active bribery, which is the paying or the offering of bribes. Section 2, which is passive bribery, which is the receipt of bribes. Section 6, which is another active bribery offence, but it's specifically targeted at the bribery of foreign public officials. And finally, which is the subject of this podcast, under Section 7, the corporate offence of failure to prevent bribery. Failure to prevent bribery. Now, this is a strict liability offence. It doesn't need uh, the proof of mens rea. But there is a defence available, which I will say more. So under Section 7, which is that corporate failure to prevent bribery offence, a relevant commercial organisation commits an offence, commits an offence under the statute, if a person who is associated with it bribes another, either intending to get or keep business, or some kind of advantage in the conduct of business for the organisation. Now, for the purposes of the statute, a relevant commercial organisation is any body corporate or partnership formed under the laws of any part of the United Kingdom, and carries on a business wherever that business is, and anybody corporate or partnership wherever formed that carries on a business or part of a business in the United Kingdom. So it's a very broad definition of what amounts to a relevant commercial organisation. Now crucial to it, as I said under the definition of the offence under Section 7, it commits an offence if a person associated with it. Now that's broadly conceived, an associated person, an associated person. The term is broad and it's consciously broad, it's consciously broad. It's really 
designed to encompass anybody, not just employees, but much broader than that. Anybody who might conduct services on behalf, by or on behalf of, a relevant commercial organisation. Really, I suppose labels don't really matter. It's more that they perform services in some capacity or other. Obviously, it includes employees. Employees are associated persons. They're presumed to be so. But it would also, by, I suppose, logic, common sense, almost hesitate to use that phrase, it would cover agents, intermediaries, subsidiary corporations, and any other contracting party. But that sometimes might depend on the circumstances but broadly speaking, that would be it would be sufficient to cover those those forms of relationship, those forms of associated person. Now, importantly for section seven, it links to the active bribery offences. So it links to the section one offence of active bribery, it links to the section six offence of bribing a foreign public official. So that's an important element to it. It doesn't link to the receipt offence, the passive bribery offence, under Section 2, which always makes me think about defensive compliance and the over-inclusive nature of some corporate compliance programmes, particularly with regard to bribery and anti-corruption, simply because they seem to catch out everybody or they seem to include everybody in their compliance programmes, even those that aren't really in a position to pay bribes would necessarily be subject to it. I can kind of understand it. It's defensive compliance. It's easier to force every employee or every associated person to go through the same training. But it does seem a little unnecessary in some cases. Maybe, maybe it builds an ethos, an ethos of bribery. The tone of the organisation is set by everybody having the same understanding of that corporate's attitude to bribery. Anyway, so, importantly, the offence, the Section 7 offence, links to Section 1 and Section 6, those two active offences under the Bribery Act 2010. Now, there's a point about territoriality which is worth noting here. If uh, an overseas agent is used, someone who is domiciled, someone who's based in a jurisdiction outside, for our purposes, I suppose, England and Wales, then even if they're beyond the reach of prosecuting authorities here, but yet commit what would otherwise be a Section 1 or a Section 6 offence, the principal may still be prosecuted under Section 7, even though the offence was not committed in England and Wales, or more broadly, the United Kingdom. So it's an important point to understand that one could employ an overseas agent or use an overseas agent. Technically, that person would be maybe beyond the grasp of prosecuting authorities over here, but the corporation, if it's domiciled here, would still potentially be prosecutable under Section 7 for failure to prevent bribery if that overseas agent either committed what would be a Section 1 or Section 6 offence if they were here. Now, there is a defence under Section 7. The defence under Section 7 is that if the uh, recognised uh, commercial organisation, if the recognised commercial organisation or relevant commercial organisation, so they say, um, demonstrates that they had in place adequate procedures, 
which covers a multitude of sins, but adequate procedures to prevent associated persons from committing bribes, then it may not be liable if it can demonstrate that it has those adequate procedures in place. What amounts to an adequate procedure, of course, is a challenge. Under the statute, the Secretary of State is under an obligation. They must publish guidance relating to what amounts to adequate procedures under the Bribery Act 2010. It is guidance. Consequently, as guidance, it's very broad, it's almost principles-based, and it allows a certain degree of flexibility when it comes to the interpretation and implementation of those guidelines by organisations. Now, if the offence is committed, if they're found guilty, then it would attract a fine. Uh, that's the, the standard sanction under Section 7. But it could be avoided. There is the possibility that a deferred prosecution agreement could be utilised. In fact, the United Kingdom's first deferred prosecution agreement was agreed in relation to various offences, but one of which was the failure to prevent bribery offence, and the uh, the one of the parties was Standard Bank PLC, as it is now. I think it was something else at the time. So what is a deferred prosecution agreement? Well, they've been in use in the US for many, many years. The Department of Justice has a long history of arranging deferred prosecution agreements with entities which they believe to have committed certain offences in order that that corporation can avoid prosecution provided it sticks to the terms of the DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. In the UK, in fact, actually, well, I remember the US authorities, which were also investigating the Glencore bribery scandal alongside Dutch and Swiss authorities, have... Um, created or agreed a DPA in that case, and it's the subject of uh, many news stories in the US at the moment. But what is a DPA then? Well, in the UK we've had them for almost a decade now, maybe just a bit less than that. It's, I suppose the best way of describing it, it's a fair, reasonable and proportionate court-approved, has to be approved by a court, voluntary arrangement between the prosecuting authorities, so in England and Wales it would be the Serious Fraud Office or the Crown Prosecution Service, and the entity which is said to have committed the offence. Now, the way it works, the way the Deferred Prosecution Agreement works, is that it has the effect of suspending the prosecution of the offence for the period under which the Deferred Prosecution Agreement operates, providing, as I've said, that the relevant commercial organisation meets the criteria that are agreed under the terms of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Now, it might help if we provide a concrete example here, just so you can understand how these things work and the terms of the arrangements. So, I mentioned that first Deferred Prosecution Agreement agreed in the United Kingdom, and it was uh, Standard Bank PLC. Well, the following were the conditions that were attached to it, and it just gives you a flavour of the sort of things that can be added to a deferred prosecution agreement. There's no, there's no strict letter as to what should be applied. It is very much attuned to the facts of each individual case. So, Standard Bank PLC, for uh, the offences for which it was uh, alleged to have committed, um, agreed to pay compensation of six million US dollars with interest. It had its 
profits on the transactions disgorged. Disgorged simply means the profits were simply taken away. It's something to which you had no right, so it's taken away from you. They had their profits uh, disgorged. I think it was around $8 million. They had to uh, pay a financial penalty, but that penalty was reduced because they gave the earliest possible admission that they could, and that's a standard discount which happens in criminal matters. You can get discounted for early or cooperation. Uh, they agreed to past and future cooperation with relevant authorities in matters relating to the conduct arising to circumstances from the draft indictment that was provided. The bank had to agree at its own expense to submitting to an independent review of its compliance procedures in relation to bribery, uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption uh, under the Bribery Act and with other applicable anti-corruption laws. So anti-corruption laws that might operate in jurisdictions where that corporation also operates and also had to pay the costs of the serious fraud office. So it doesn't just impose sanctions in terms of stripping away profits, requiring payments of compensation to be made and so on, but the terms of a deferred prosecution agreement can also add obligations to you or to the organisation to tidy up, to clean up their, really to, cl to clean up their compliance procedures and so on and so forth. Now, uh, as I've indicated, DPAs, Deferred Prosecution Agreements, are made uh, sunset agreements, so they come to an end after a specified period. In the Standard Bank case, it was three years, and since Standard Bank PLC met the obligations imposed on it under the terms of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, it actually avoided prosecution, which of course is what these Deferred Prosecution Agreements try to do. They try to avoid the need for prosecution. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment when I look at the advantages and disadvantages of these deferred prosecution agreements, because they're by no means, I suppose, a panacea. Importantly, it's not a plea bargain, but it's not a guilty plea either. And provided they, they keep their nose clean and they comply with the terms, then the corporation is in the clear. Now, they're not without their controversy, deferred prosecution agreements. They do have their detractors, but they have, I suppose, significant advantages. For the prosecutor, there's swift resolution of the matter without the costs and certainly sometimes without the, the, ignominy, uh, the ignominy of, uh, of, a, of a collapse, without the costs or the ignominy of collapse of a trial. So that can be a significant advancement, uh, advantage to a prosecutor. It could encourage corporations to do the right thing and cooperate, to self-report, which, as we saw in relation to the Deferred Prosecution Agreement for Standard Bank, it can actually result in reduction in some elements of the, uh, the, the sanction, can actually result in some elements, uh, a reduction in some elements of the sanction. And that can have uh, an impact for the corporation, that if it is cooperating, if it is self-reporting, that can, in my view, enculture good practice within an organisation. Remember that one of the themes of financial crime and corporations' approach to financial crime is that the tone of a corporation's approach to financial crime is set from the top of the organisation and is said to cascade through the organisation. Well, 
This is one of the ways in which that can happen. It can send a message that this sort of thing is not going to be tolerated. We do cooperate, we will self-report, and that can enculture an organisation with good practice. There are, I suppose, again, significant advantages for businesses. Obviously, they enjoy the, they uh, avoid the costs of litigation and so on and uh, costly possible defence. But it allows a corporation to continue its business operations, with which those gains, which might be obtained to employment of a number of people and fiscal revenues for the government. So they're, they're actually box-ticking all round. It's worth remembering, I suppose, with that in mind, that the vast majority of employees would not be involved in any of the wrongdoing. They would merely be innocent parties. The same, I suppose, could be said for investors, particularly investors who don't have any real active role or engagement in a corporation. They're just there to take the dividends. So they may be entirely innocent. So allowing this mechanism to exist so employees and investors aren't dragged down may not be such a bad thing. Of course, the flip side of that is that they may be said to have benefited indirectly if the business on which they worked, the employees worked, was obtained by the payment of bribes. So they could be said to have indirectly benefited even if they weren't necessarily involved in any of the bribery. Of course, there is the corporate mis uh, risk management perspective. I'd imagine a corporation would like the idea of a deferred prosecution agreement as opposed to a trial because there is significant uh, legal risk and there is significant reputational risk which can be associated with any kind of criminal act. Downsides, well, I mean, the, the real downside of not prosecuting is that it undermines the deterrent effect of the criminal law, I suppose. Corporations with deep pockets can simply escape liability by paying a big pile of money, uh, whereas that may not be something that a smaller corporation can do. And therefore, it might indicate that what we're creating, in fact, is, is a kind of tiered approach to criminal law by the use of deferred prosecution agreements. Whatever you think, really, DPAs are certainly here to stay and they look to be a key tool available to prosecuting authorities as they seek to respond to criminal wrongdoing and especially the corporate failure to prevent bribery offences and, looking forwards, to other failure to prevent offences which may be created in the future, which we looked at in previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, where the all-party all parliamentary groups are looking at indicating a support for a broader range of failure to prevent offences under uh, English law. That's it. That's it for this little podcast. Back as usual on Sunday with more of the, the same stuff on sanctions, money laundering and fraud. Thanks very much. <laughs>